There are dozens of genre film festivals around the world, and we either can't afford or don't have the time to go to any of them. Well, we're guessing a lot of you are in the same boat, and on Cinema Smorgasbord presents Cinema Fantastica. We pick one of these festivals, a year in which it ran, and choose two films that played at that festival to battle against each other. On this episode, we're traveling to the 1990 edition of the Molins Horror Film Festival in Molins de Rey in Barcelona, Spain, where we'll be checking out the underwater mutant monster horror Leviathan and Corey Haim bonding with a super intelligent dog in Watchers. <laughs> Welcome to Cinema Fantastica, a trip through time and space to the genre film festivals around the globe. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is the master of ceremonies, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? Uh, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm okay, Doug. It's, you know, I'm doing all right. You know, we've, I, I'm, I'm always excited. To Liam, today out. we are enemies. Uh, We're tasked with pitting two genre film classics against one another in a battle to see who reigns supreme. What do you feel about that? I, so... This festival. Right, yeah. I'm just going to interrupt you already because you're being so wishy-washy in your responses, <laughs> Liam. Oh, I have to say, okay, one of the things I think. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Uh, one of the things that I think holds us back as podcast uh, compatriots is that we're not combative enough. <laughs> Eat my ass. No. Uh, look, a lot of times when we do this part, this particular uh, podcast, we uh -huh. are covering films that don't necessarily have a lot of name recognition. Right, there are films that uh, maybe I caught, maybe I didn't, but they're not like big movies. I and mean, the list for this festival, Doug, was yeah. a little bit more stacked with recognizable names, heavy so hitters. I, so I should have done that. I should have said, "What's on this list that I know is a true banger, just a fucking amazing." But instead, I said, "Let's pick one of the few films on the list that I've never fucking seen before, that I have no idea, just for funsies." which is not the spirit of the game. I don't know why I do this sometimes. Sometimes I pick a movie and I think, fuck you, Doug, I'm going to win because I love the movie that I picked. But more often than not, despite the fact that this is in fact a competition and you are in fact the little punk I'm here to beat up with, uh -huh. my, with my taste, I don't do that. I pick something that I don't know what it is because I think that's more fun. Yeah, and then, but, so, uh, but I match your energy I there. I, I I did the same. We both could have picked Hellraiser 2 here. I'm, I don't know if you're a big Hellraiser 2 fan. I am but at a the big very Hellraiser least, 2 fan. But at the very least, it's better than the two movies that we've, we're going to be talking about. But oh that's not God, fun. Yeah. I, so, I mean, so I picked one that I thought was also also one that I had not seen and one that I thought would be stack up well against the one that you picked. So, I mean, you should feel happy about that, right? We We want to keep the competition fair. I guess so. All I'm saying is... I don't feel – sometimes when we do this particular show, I am very much like, fuck you, I win. And uh, I don't know that I feel that way, Doug, on this particular one. So I'm being a little more like, yeah, you know, it's cool. We, we, we both picked movies, respectable movies, I guess, or whatever. All right. Well, Liam, let's talk about this festival that we're going to be talking about today because it's not really a festival in a traditional sense. I mean, it is now. Uh, but uh, it, it didn't start out that way. Actually, the Mullins Horror Film Festival, the reason that I wanted to choose it is that it's one of the 
oldest of the genre film festivals that we've covered on this podcast. It started all the way back in 1973, uh, 1973, but at that time, of course, not 1873. It started all the way back in 1973, but at that time, it wasn't a festival. It was basically a one-night movie marathon called Setze Horas de Cine de Terror, literally 16 hours of horror films. And that's what it was throughout most of the 1970s, basically an all-night horror marathon. So, uh, and of various lengths, it wasn't always 16 hours. Sometimes it was 12, sometimes it was 10. And as that decade moved on, as it got into the late 70s, they would bring in more elaborate kind of performative aspects. Like they'd bring in people with hoods and chainsaws to rev up after a screening of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, fun stuff. <laughs> um, and that, So that then in the 1980s evolved into the two simultaneous marathons of films that would be running. So people could go back and forth between the two. And there was like controversies around it because of some of this performative stuff. Then it eventually kind of petered out in the late 80s, early 90s. Of course, we're going to be talking about 1990 today. There was then an attempt throughout the 1990s with the Cinephile Club. They formed to try to bring back the original marathons, but instead they would just do kind of monthly sessions of screenings of cult and horror movies at that time period. The Doce Ores de Cine de Terror de Molins de Rey was brought back in 2001 with another marathon uh, that included uh, Peter Jackson's Bad Taste and Michael Haneke's Funny Games. And they had the performative aspects as well. And this reborn version eventually evolved into what they have now, which is the Festival de Cine de Terror de Molins de Rey. And that's been running ever since. And that is a full-fledged uh, horror movie um, festival that they bring in every year. It's very well liked, very well regarded, and it's not just the festival itself. They also do a professional industry day, which meets, which has uh, filmmakers meeting others and companies, a horror short stories contest, a board game space, a popular video contest called 20 Seconds of Horror, that sort of thing. So there's all sorts of stuff around it. It has grown into a really big thing. So when it, when you look at the history of this festival, it going back to 1973, it's very different now than what it was back then. But what's important for the 1990 edition? Because, again, the 1990 edition was really just a marathon of films. The important thing is what was shown. This is the 1990 edition of the Dolce Horace de Cinema de Terror de Molins de Rey. And the film shown at it, Lee. I mean, I know how excited you are about this. And this goes to what you were saying a moment ago about picking the ones that you know are good as opposed to picking what might be interesting. The films shown were George Romero's Monkey Shines, Tony Randall's Hellraiser 2, John Hess's Watchers, which we'll be covering today, the Chiodo Brothers' Killer Clowns from Outer Space, uh, George P. Cosmodos's uh, Leviathan, and Stephen Hopkins' Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child. Uh, Liam, uh, I know that we chose uh, Watchers, uh, I chose Watchers, and you chose Leviathan. Uh, any thoughts on any of these other films that you could have chosen? Well, I mean, for me personally, the 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 highlight is Hellraiser 2, though I really like Monkey Shines, and I really like killer clowns from outer space sure uh, hellraiser 2 i think I, I i understand it's not hellraiser right like hellraiser is the classic but there's a lot i like about hellraiser 2 i think it's oh yeah absolutely very fun uh well fun you know in a horror movie sense and <laughs> kind of upsetting in a way that i really appreciate uh but you know monkey shine's also very strong i think an underrated movie um, maybe it's just not Romero doing what people want from him sometimes, but I very much uh, enjoy it. And Killer Clowns from Outer Space is not what I would call a very good movie, but it's just it's got that just insane fun thing about it that I like. Even it though, knows what it you know, what it is. Yeah, I exactly. Think, yeah, exactly. So exactly. And it's funny. I think both of us probably probably feel very similarly about Nightmare on Elm Street 
part five, which is that it's, it's it came after three and four, which are both very good. And yeah, five is pretty shitty. It has some fun effect stuff in it. I, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty picky when it comes to the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, honestly. So, oh my, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, you know, I, rank I like... them, rank the original series. Oh, uh, I mean, the only ones that I really like are uh, one, two, and three. And if I had to rank them, I would say one, three, two. And then uh, I think four is pretty good, but I don't love it. A lot of people really love four, and I just think it's it's fine. And then after four, I don't care about any of them until New Nightmare. And even then, New Nightmare is better on paper than it is in execution. Like a lot of I think New Nightmare is a little overrated at this point, even though I do yeah. like it. Um, I like it, but it's just people talk about it like. Well, I think the here's the thing. It, it's him doing meta before he gets to scream. And yeah. I think for some people they they do the whole yeah, scream is good, but he really perfected the idea of new nightmare. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, first of all, I don't even know that scream is good. It's just important for the history of horror at that time, but parts of it are super fucking annoying. Like it, the thing about scream that drives me crazy when I rewatch it is there's so much ability there. Like it's a, an incredibly executed horror film with a script and a direction of the actors that makes it also one of the most grating films I've had to sit through in my life. And I get really annoyed with if only some of these char- characters were less frustratingly terrible, I would love this movie more because a lot of it is very well done. Sure. But like, not all teenagers are just yelling homophobes. Like the whole thing just kind of bums me out. Honestly. It's so funny because in the like late nineties, Scream's reputation was, oh, it's good. You know, it's 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 good that it brought back slasher movies, even though a lot of the movies that came in its wake were bad. You know, which is predictable. But it's not you know an all time classic. But these days, the general consensus about Scream is that it's the probably one of the top five great horror films of the nineteen nineties, at least American horror films. But I just don't see it. It just doesn't feel. For me, maybe it's because I was there. (laughs) Its reputation has really grown, I think. Maybe it's just because of all the sequels. I mean, I got to be honest, Doug. I did love it at the time. I didn't love it as much as other horror films, but I did think like, oh, this is really great, whatever. On rewatch, it bummed me out. The last time I watched it was for a guest spot. Someone was a guest on Horror Business, and they wanted to talk about it. And I got to say, this was maybe the fourth or fifth time I saw it. And I went in trying to be sensitive to it because this guest was really excited about it. I didn't want to sure. bum, them, bum them out. And I got to say, I was more able to see what I think other people see, which is like, it is very well executed. I mean, Wes Craven really does kill it when it comes to some of the editing and director work. Like, I, I just think there's a lot there to like. Sure. I just, I just don't know why the characters have to be so fucking annoying. So much <laughs> of the movie, I'm just like, everyone shut up. Like, I just wish people would stop talking. You all make me wish you were dead. <laughs> so, I don't, I don't know. It's it's maybe this is my thing. I, I do wonder to what extent in what, – what year did Scream come out? Like, 93, I think? 96. 96. 93, 94. I don't fucking know. 94 was New Nightmare. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Okay. In 96. I mean, Liam, you should have been doing what I did in the 1990s. Instead of having fun with your friends, you should have been reading the Leonard Maltin movie. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly wasn't doing that. I, I did see Scream in the theater, but I wasn't reading the movie guide. But I'll tell you this. In 96, 
teenagers were annoying. I'm not saying he's entirely wrong, but I don't think they were as annoying as the teenagers are in that movie, which is they they feel like a caricature. It really feels like maybe the subtext of that movie is Wes Craven saying, I hate the young. <laughs> they, they're just so terrible in the movie. But uh, but maybe not. Maybe I'm maybe it's just a, me looking into the past and being like, were we really that bad? Because these kids deserve to die. I think peak annoying teenager hit in 1999, but definitely Scream was that whole thing revving up, <laughs> at least in movies. Liam, you chose George Cosmetos' Leviathan, and I chose John Hess's Watchers. Why did you choose Leviathan for us to watch? The only thing I knew about Leviathan was what other people had said, which is like, it's not the abyss, so why bother? And I realized when I looked at this list that there were a lot of movies on this list I was very familiar with. And the only two I wasn't familiar with were Leviathan and Watchers. And I saw the name George P. Cosmatos and was like, oh, that sounds familiar. Why do I know that name? I said, I don't know. I'll, I'll just pick that and see. And, you know, we'll go with that. And it was only later when I read your write-up that I was like, oh, right, he directed all these other movies, some of which I like and some of which I don't. So I, I, I don't think it was, oh, I like this guy. It was more, I recognize this name, but I know I've never seen Leviathan. I'm familiar don't, with Don't you think cover, you al- but... also recognize his name because of his son? Well, but I knew it wasn't Panos Cosmetos. Right. You know Fair what enough. I mean? Like, okay. I, 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 I didn't think it was him. But uh, and and I knew that was his son, but I wasn't thinking like, well, because Panos Cosmatos is actually one of my favorite directors. Surely his dad <laughs> is great. That that doesn't pan out, right? Like so, <laughs> yeah, that right. wasn't really what it was. But it was more like, um, this name is familiar to me because I'm sure I've seen some of his movies. But I think I thought he did, you know. Uh, I know he's the the dad of Penos Cosmatos, but I didn't know if that was a good or bad thing in the sense of like what he had directed. And sure. so it turns out it's more of a mixed bag, you know. Um, but honestly, also I've I've seen the cover of Leviathan, not the one, but for people who watch this online, they've updated the cover on a lot of internet stuff to a really bad cover that's not nearly as good as the original cover but it's the same idea as the original cover i don't understand why they did that. it looks terrible but the original cover i have been seeing it in video stores forever and i always thought it looked interesting but i never i just never picked it up and i don't know why that is well i kind of know now but i didn't know when i picked it why that was i had never picked it up you know in the late 80s, my family didn't go to see uh, movies in theaters very often, so um, we have a lot of memories, my brothers and I, about the, about the movies that we did see. Now, I did not see Leviathan in the theater. I was too young, but my oldest brother did, uh, and so that was just one of those movies I remember from that time. It's like, oh, he saw a horror movie in a movie theater. That's pretty cool, because he was only like like 13 at the time. Um, and so I had some memories of what him t- telling me about it, but, and I probably saw it on video at some point in the nineties, but I had no memories of all uh, at all about it. Like yourself, I thought of it in that collection of movies in 1989, 1990 that were about people underwater, which included this, uh, the abyss, as you mentioned, as well as deep star six. And frankly, Liam, when you picked this movie, I had confused it with deep star six. I was like, Oh, this is the one that Sean S Cunningham directed no leviathan has a much better pedigree than that fucking movie does it actually has a shockingly good pedigree which we'll talk about when we get to it you know why i chose watchers liam why is that because it's canadian 
you know, I thought it might be Canadian. Actually, there was one point where I thought it might be Australian, only because there's that random Australian guy, and then there's another. He's supposed to be Australian. Isn't there that? Isn't that guy Australian? I think he's supposed to be English. Oh, I thought he was Australian. Well, Fuck. I mean, either way, he's pretending to be what he is. His accent yes. is fucking terrible. I had to look it up. I was like, I was like, listen, there's no way that this is a real accent. So I immediately looked him up. I was like, oh no, he's just a Canadian actor. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> well, regardless, I thought for a sec, it, it, I knew it wasn't an American movie. Let's just say that. Uh, but it, but I didn't realize it was Canadian, though. That makes sense because um, it's too like. It's too wooded in a way that doesn't feel very like like I was watching it going like did they film this in like rural Washington state like where where is this movie set I don't know what's happening right now especially because the accents are all over the place right the yeah, cops they're are like all southern cops it's, the, it's the, bizarre the the, uh, the hotel guy really fucking threw me off <laughs> I was like what accent is he supposed to have right now uh, before we get into it, Liam, I thought it would be fun to take a look at the earliest edition of the marathon uh, that we could find, uh, which is actually the 1974 edition, which I think is actually technically the first one that they ever did. This is the Setze Horace de Cine de Terror. They show, by the way, uh, apologies from any of my Spanish uh, on this episode. I uh, I took Spanish in university, but it's been a very, very long time. They showed at this all-night horror fil- film festival the 1970 West German vampire film Jonathan. Alfred Hitchcock's uh, Psycho from 1960, Robert Mulligan's psychological thriller The Other from 1972, which actually has John Ritter in it, uh, Roy Ward Baker's excellent horror anthology Asylum. I know that we're both uh, fans of that one, Liam. Eug- Eugenio Martin's Horror Express from 1972 with Christopher Love Lee. That. Pe- love Horror yeah, I, I love it too. I think it must be in the public domain because it's so easy to find everywhere with Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and Telly Savalas. The classic folk horror The Blood on Satan's Claw from 1971. 1968's Dracula Has Risen from the Grave. The 1970 Spanish experimental film Aquatic uh, Vampire, which is basically just behind-the-scenes footage of Jesus Franco's Count Dracula with Christopher Lee and Herbert Lom. And then Mario Bava's Black Sunday from 1960. I gotta say, Liam, a pretty amazingly great lineup for 1970. It's, really, it's actually really fucking good. Like, I'm looking at this going, I like the rhythm, I like the choices of it, I like the timing, like, going from... The Blood on Satan's Claw into Dracula Has Risen from the Grave into this weird experimental film. That's some real fuckery that I really appreciate in a marathon. Uh, and when I first read it through, I realized my only criticism was one that they couldn't do anything about, which is I would have put a few more modern movies in it, but it's 1974, <laughs> Doug. They couldn't, you know, that they, they're working with what they got in 1974. But like, if you saw this lineup now, that would be my only, like, legitimately my only criticism of this. If this were a modern lineup, is I'd put one movie in there that was like from the '80s or '90s. Otherwise, I'd watch this lineup today. I think that's a great. It's a great lineup. We can't say with confidence that this is necessarily the order in which uh, these films were shown. Oh, okay. I, I kind uh, of assumed it was. That it, yeah. It, if not, that's fine. But if this was the order, it's pretty good order too. It, so you can actually see the films that they've shown at this festival on uh, either a list or a spreadsheet, uh, which which I I downloaded the spreadsheet and they do that have them in a certain order. This is kind of the reverse order in which they have them listed, which is what I thought might be the actual chronological order. I decided to translate every single one of these films, <laughs> uh, the titles separately. So it was often quite a surprise to see what the movie was. I'm like, oh, it's Horror oh, yeah. Express. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. it's Dracula's Risen from the Grave. But it's it's fun, and I mean, I do think that this is a lineup. That stacks up. I have to say that that Quadacook vampire movie, which I haven't actually heard of before, sounds really interesting. That's the the one the behind the scenes footage, but also that West German vampire film Jonathan. I don't think I've heard of that one before either. 
I feel like I have heard of Jonathan, but I don't remember where. I certainly haven't seen it, though. And um, that part is also interesting to me. I also have never seen the other. So there's at least uh, three movies on this list I've never seen, which is kind of cool. I, I, that makes me even happier, you know? I also like the idea. I mean, it feels very international, which, as you would you would expect for a film uh, festival in Spain or an all-night horror festival in Spain. But, I mean, it just uh, it gives you an idea of... of movies that maybe were getting a little more attention there you know one of the nice things about this list is that there isn't a lot of american stuff on it which of course yeah i I just mean you know i'm not to knock american horror of the 1970s which is some of the best in the world but it's just nice to see a variety of stuff it's more it's more like what a festival would be or or a marathon would be if we were to do it now yeah i agree doug i agree let us take a break, Liam. When we come back, we're going to start with my choice, the all-Canadian 1988 yes. Watchers. <laughs> <laughs> the, the dime store Bigfoot movie, Watchers. <laughs> it's known that Banadine has conducted classified biological research for the National Security Organization. Any reason for our viewers to be concerned? None whatsoever. Although the research animals which were kept here have been destroyed, absolutely no toxic elements have been released. Who escaped? GH3. The dog? And one of the oxcoms. Are the oxcom and the dog still telepathically linked? On a biofrequency that only the oxcom can receive. Travis Cornell made a new friend today. And it may just cost him his life. The dog was like a homing device. The creature, a search and destroy missile. You know what happened to Tracy's, don't you? Travis had a dog. A boy takes in a stray dog, later discovering that it's an ultra-intelligent runaway being stalked by a dangerous creature from the same genetic research lab. It's 1988's Watchers, directed by John Hess, who, uh, this is actually a Roger Corman-produced film. He would continue that relationship with the Not of This World TV movie in 1991, as well as Alligator 2, The Mutation, in 1991. Uh, his last full-length feature was the 2000 action comedy Crash and Burns, though he does have multiple projects currently in active development. Written by Bill Freed, if this is not a familiar name to you, uh, it's because it's not a real name. It's actually a pseudonym for uh, renowned writer, director, and alleged rapist Paul Haggis, the co-writer of Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace and Million Dollar Baby, as well as the writer and director of the terrible Oscar winner Crash from 2004. Any feelings on Crash, Liam? Oh, terrible movie. Awful movie. Yeah. Terrible, awful. Also co-written by Damian Lee, a bit of a low-budget legend, having directed 1990's Abraxas, Guardian of the Universe with Jesse Ventura, 1989's Food of the Gods 2, 1990's Ski School, as well as 1996's When the Bullet Hits the Bone with Jeff Wincott. Also, he is Canadian, Liam. Uh, He also, one of his last writing credits was National Lampoon's Last Resort, also with Corey Haim, who we're going to be talking about in just a moment. This is based, of course, on the 1987 novel Watchers by the prolific horror author Dean Kuntz, which was the book that sort of launched him as a best-selling author. There really isn't a lot of notable cast members outside of Corey Haim as the lead Travis and Michael Ironside as his pursuer Lem, though uh, there are kind of, of familiar Canadian faces in the cast if you're a nerd about that sort of thing like I am. This is all filmed, of course, in British Columbia. This is the start, Liam, of the Watchers film series, with Watchers 2 following in 1990 with Mark Singer, Watchers 3 with Wings Hauser in 1994, and Watchers Reborn in 1998 with Mark Hamill. Holy and shit. I thought this is. This was a notable piece of uh, of uh, trivia. Corey Haim and Barbara Williams, who play son and mother in this film, a few years later, they play lovers in 1992's Oh, What a Night. What do you think about that? 
gross. Gross and weird. <laughs> Being an actor just must be the wildest shit sometimes. Liam, uh, Watchers is a film with all those sequels. Uh, it does have a certain amount of credibility for horror films of the late 1980s. Though, as I said before, this was my first watch of it. I get the impression that it was your first as well. What did you think of it? I had never even heard of this movie before. and Three sequels, what, Liam. When a horror film from this late in the 80s exists that I've never even heard anyone talk about, I assume it must be terrible, right? Like, I just, uh And then it came, you know, comes up based off a book by Dean Koontz. And uh, I don't know that there's been a lot of successful film adaptations of Dean Koontz novels, right? So I'm, I'm even more skeptical at that point. You have a question in here. I'm going to spoil this question because this is what I want to say about the film. You had, you know, had as a potential question, you know, is it designed to be like an Amblin film? It very much has that Amblin 80s Spielberg influenced vibe, right? That sure. kind of we're going on an adventure kind of small vibe. town, right? Oh, Boy's dog type shit. 100% kids on bikes doing fun yeah. things. Only it's it's mean, Doug. It's mean in a way that I associate, and I think people will understand this if they see this movie and they see the special effects on this creature, but the level of cruelty in this, I associate with other Bigfoot movies. Have you noticed that? A chunk of Bigfoot horror movies are like mean movies, where it's just like, and then Bigfoot fucking hurts this person real bad. It, it tends to be the vibe. And so... Do you think uh, it's because, I mean, because Bigfoot, you can't really present much personality. All it yes. is is a, a like a, a, a creature with, I mean, whatever level of intelligence, but also doesn't have any ability to speak. All it can do is stalk and kill. And often in the movie itself... Uh, and in this movie until the end, it's often just a hairy arm. So it's just a hairy arm reaching out and fucking <laughs> yeah. you up. And that's what it is in this movie. And I got to be honest here. This is getting back to the main question. What did I think? The combo of just true cornball 80 shit that, while it is silly, does hit a kind of nostalgia note for me with some of the violent kills in this movie and then the extra spice of michael ironside just he's in a different movie but he's in this movie you know just like all the adults around him are just like well i don't know what the deal is and he's like i'll eat their bones like he's just (laughs) he's playing on this like here's the thing watching this i couldn't help but think of bigfoot movies i couldn't help but think of amblin films and then i couldn't help but think that whoever's directing michael ironsides of this is like yeah uh you're kind of like a more bureaucratic version of your character from scanners remember scanners remember how in scanners you were the scariest dude who ever existed you're like that but you're pretending to be a nice guy for some of the movie but even when he's pretending to be nice you're like yo that dude hurts children like there's no way he's not a nefarious monster that little spice Doug I really enjoyed this fucking movie it's not a good movie and I'm not surprised I haven't heard of it though I will say the fact that later sequels include both Wiggs Hauser and Mark Hamill make me want to watch them even if they're bad I just kind of want to know what's going on there uh but I had fun watching this movie it's it's the sort of thing where I don't think I would buy a blu-ray at full price but if I was at a horror marathon and this shit came on, I'd be like, yeah, dog, let's do this thing. I want some cute puppy time, and I want some gory Bigfoot-like action. 
There's a general consensus, I think, that Watchers 2 is the best of the series. Oh, wow. Uh, so okay. it's, it's a market improvement over this one. I've not seen it, so I can't say that for sure. I do know that at one point they released a DVD double feature, including the first and second movie, which seems like a ideal pickup for you, Liam. <laughs> um, Perfect. I will say that I did have some hesitancy going into this because it's about a super intelligent dog, and I get a little iffy about seeing dog violence. I don't know. I'm a real wuss. I, I understand that. that. No, no, no. I understand that, yeah. Um, and one that has human-like intelligence just probably makes that all the worse. Or maybe just animals in general I'm a little sensitive to these days. But thankfully, they, they don't really, you know, the dog gets a little messed up at the end, but, like, not really. It's not like watching Cujo or something like that. It's It's... It's actually a lot of fun to watch this movie. It's funny that you mention it being so kind of mean-spirited because most of the violence is actually, even though you see, like, corpses with their eyes ripped out and stuff like that, you don't really see that much, like, happen to the people. They just get thrown around a little bit. Sure, um, but it's, it's, it is, it feels to me, and maybe this is my projection, but the vibe to me, Doug, is that this film is fucking stoked. Even though it doesn't show you much gore, Every time someone gets fucked up, it's like taking a little bit of joy of like, yeah, then pull her through the window. Yeah. Fuck her. <laughs> oh, yeah. Get the teacher. Yeah. Fuck him. You know, like it just feels like except for the parts where the dog is in danger. This movie's having fun with this weird Bigfoot ape monster. Uh, the only violence that really was shocking to me at all is the Michael Ironside. I think Michael Ironsides is really the the villain here. And though yeah. the monster is terrible, there's a part where like our buddy here, the other Corey, is like kind of feels bad for this monster. Like, oh, come on, poor guy. And then the yeah. monster rages out and he still has to die. But you kind of get it. Like I wasn't sitting there. Sometimes in that kind of scene, I'd be like, fuck you, man, kill that thing. But yeah. I was like, yeah, I get it, man. It's not this monster's fault. The U.S. government is to blame, which also Canadian film, so I get that as well. Sure. Uh, the U.S. government is to blame. That's the real villain here. But it's like the government, as embodied by Michael Ironsides, uh, is really the villain of the movie, and this monster sucks, but come on, you know. I like how it's so clear, even to the both of us, and it's not just because we watch a lot of horror movies, that when Michael Ironside shows up and he's supposed to be, you know, not a bad guy at the very least, right? He's just trying to track this creature, and they try to, like, for the first half of the movie, if not longer, it's like, Michael Ironside, hey, he's not a bad guy. He might be a little sketchy, but he's not. But, of course, just because of how he's acting, we both know that at some point he's going to reveal himself to be some sort of horrible monster, which, of course... He does indeed. Liam, uh, you mentioned already the the idea that Dean Koontz, uh, the movies adapted from his work are unlikely to be very good. Of course, at this time period in the late 80s, early 90s, Stephen King, you could say the same thing. Most of the movies adapted from Agreed. his work Agreed. were pretty rough, particularly around that time period. So I don't think you could say that's necessarily that is necessarily a reflection of the quality of the work itself. Do you have any thoughts on Dean Koontz? Did you read him? I know that you're a Stephen King fan. Did you read uh, Dean Koontz, basically his, <laughs> the mirror version? Some people say a poor man's version of Stephen King. I mean, here's the thing about Dean Koontz, Doug. I've read at least four Dean Koontz books in my life. I cannot remember a single detail about any of those four books. Uh, that, to me, is not a good sign. I mean, you know, I had... I, when I was obsessed with Stephen King, I was reading a lot of Stephen King books. This was like, uh, 
this is whenever I say stuff like this, I feel like it sounds like I'm a crazy person, but this is just true. Spent a lot of grade school reading Stephen King. That Honestly, was like, I think that that's a that's a, a not a unique experience to you. Yeah. Lots of people, including myself. Yeah, and so at some point, I wanted to check out the other names because if you were at that time looking at, at paperbacks of Stephen King, you're inevitably going to see Dean Koontz and Peter Straub. Those were the other two names. Sure. And I read those other guys as well, and they just didn't stick with me. And I don't know that that means they're necessarily – this is hard because I love Stephen King to some extent, but as an adult going back to his books – I'm not always as impressed with them as I was as a 10-year-old, you know? Sure. And I don't mean that as a hard criticism because he must be doing something right, right? Uh, but I don't know that it's like he's a fucking master laureate and Peter Straub and Dean Coots are fucking jerk-offs. You're like, I don't know that the difference is that large. But I do know a lot of Stephen King books stuck with me in a way that I they're still with me, even if I don't want to reread those books. Don't you think part of that might be that those books are are sort of because they've been regurgitated and adapted and people talk about them a lot more, that maybe your memory is just able to stick with them because like even you might not remember a lot of the details, but the general stuff you remember because people are just talking about them more often. No, you say stuff like this sometimes, Doug, and I don't know what world you think I live in. Other than Justin Lore, my co-host for Har Business, no one talks about Stephen King in my life. I don't know a single human who's like, hey, this is like that Stephen King book, blah, blah. I don't know these people, Doug. I don't know who these people I are. Just, I just mean because with. his continued popularity. I mean, like, you know, there was still a stand TV show from last year, even though it sucked. But like, <laughs> his work is continuously being adapted and readapted. I guess so. But I think in my experience – knowing the adaptation has nothing to do with knowing the actual book, right? Like a lot of people know the shining movie and they don't know shit about the book. They don't even really, I think probably understand what the book's actually about if they only know the movie, (laughs) you know what I mean? And so, and some of the stuff that stuck with me is not stuff that's been adapted. You know, it's stuff that just burrowed into my brain and into my imagination because of, you know, Stephen King's, whatever his power is, which I would suggest is not dialogue, uh, whatever his power is really embedded some of that imagery into my brain. And I still think about certain things, not everything, but certain things like really stuck with me. The Dean Kuhn stuff I read, the Peter Straub stuff I read did not. Uh, let's make another comparison at the time, which people might say feel like this is a crazy thing, but this all happened to me around the same time. Clive Barker, right? Sure. Less He has just as much not horror stuff as horror stuff, but he wrote a lot of stuff. There are Clive Barker books that are just as solidly in my brain, even if I've only read them once. There are aspects of them, maybe not the whole thing, but aspects of them that I really think about, and I cannot recall a single detail of these Dean Koontz novels. And mm. again, I, I what I was trying to get to, that all sounds very tough. I'm not I don't mean that as a huge criticism of Dean Koontz. He might be great. It's just I don't have a strong opinion of him despite having read multiple books. So uh, you know, I I get that like once someone walks onto the scene like Stephen King, he's gonna take up a lot of space and a lot of air. And I think if Clive Barker hadn't uh, pivoted to other things like comic books and more film work and whatever, then maybe he wouldn't seem in his own world separate from Stephen King. But uh, for someone like Peter Straub or Dean Koontz, it must be hard, right? Like they're playing. It, it's like it's like all the metal bands that came after Metallica. Metallica became such a fucking thing that if you were also doing thrash. 
people were gonna who didn't know any better were just gonna compare you to Metallica, and that might not be a fair fucking thing to do. Uh, but it might be, right? And so that's sort of my vibe is like Dean Koontz might be a Stephen King ripoff. He might not be, but I don't remember his shit enough to know one way or the other. So I kind of feel bad about that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And especially being prolific and making lengthy horror novels at that time period. You're right. It's not like there wasn't a lot of room <laughs> within the horror genre. It's like when you're a, a popular horror director, they might compare you to Hitchcock or John Carpenter or whatever, but like, there's lots of room, right? There's dozens of great horror directors. Yeah. But yeah, it feels like there can only be one major horror author that, of, that, a, that of a had generation. An, that had an impact on so many normal people. Like yeah. the shelves, half the book, if you go to a bookstore now, the horror section is not that impressive. But when I was a kid, Doug, I felt like half the books in well, this was weird because you could buy novels in the grocery store when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Half the books in the fucking grocery store were horror books. Like, I, I didn't even know where to start sometimes because there were so many books. And there there are sleeper people that you wouldn't compare. Like, no one would compare V.C. Andrews or whatever to Stephen King. But, like, there were a ton of horror novels with crazy covers, hence yeah. Paperbacks from Hell by friend of the show, Grady Hendrix, uh, that had these crazy covers, and none of that lived in the shadow of Stephen King per se, but a certain kind of writer could not escape the Stephen King shadow. You just couldn't do it, you know? Now, by the way, my uh, my understanding, because I have not read the novel Watchers, is that this is not a very close adaptation of that I book. assumed it wasn't. <laughs> uh, I've read, actually, that the sequel, Watchers 2, is actually more of a close adaptation, which is kind of funny to think about. Do, um, you, do you suspect, Doug, that the book has even more of this, like... Uh, government paranoia in it. Absolutely. Was, Absolutely. I, I assumed I assumed if we are gonna do the Stephen King comparison, I assume this probably had like a bit of a Firestarter vibe, which is like that's the thing about the book Firestarter for me, was that it had it was dripping with so much fucking uh, paranoia, like you know, uh, at, what is the what was the government experimentation program? I always forget the name of the it. The Manhattan Project? No, 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 on people. Uh, oh, oh, shit, I can't remember. What MK you Ultra. I, I know. It had right. so much MK Ultra energy Firestarter did that I bet this book also had a lot of that vibe, even though it's a different kind of experimentation. It's still this general feeling of, like, go into the woods somewhere, the government is doing something fucked up just to fight the commies, and we're going to have to deal with the fallout from it. Michael Ironside, in, like, the final half hour of this movie, talking to the Corey Haim's mother, being like, hey, I know you guys, you don't trust us, but, hey, we're the government, we're on your side. And you're like, it, that is a line that is meant to elicit a groan from the crowd 100%. that is watching. <laughs> By the way, I should say, I did enjoy this movie very much, much more than I thought I was going to. I think it really kicks into high gear in that final half hour or so. Uh, it's a lot of fun when Corey Haim, you know, gets into the cabin and he has to set up all the traps and stuff like that. Though I will say your enjoyment of this is going to be based somewhat on your enjoyment of Corey Haim at this time period because what? he is... Oh, yes, 100%. He is super teen in this. He can do everything. He can drive a car. He can, you know, he, he can hunt. He he's he is the star of the show to a certain extent. And I mean, of course, he he was a burgeoning star at this time, so it does make sense. Um, I, I like... By the way, I just, think- Go ahead, Doug. Sorry. I was just going to say that this movie is also just a slick variation on a slasher movie, by the way. Uh, like you were saying, it's mean-spirited because it it's I think of it as, I call it a bowling movie. It sets up the pins and just knocks them down. It'll introduce a character just to kill them off a scene oh, later. Yes. It just happens well, again and again and again. I mean, very early in the movie, we're introduced to a female character who seems like exists to be Corey Haim's, you know, love interest. And, mm-hmm. you know, and also to, to tease a possible nudity reveal that would be very inappropriate, which I was like, why are we doing this right now? This is, does not 
not feel good. And then they immediately have her and her dad get attacked by this fucking thing. And it, the, the that sort of set the vibe for me, Doug, that like five minutes into the movie, one of our main sort of people we've been introduced to is just getting fucked up by this beast monster <laughs> that I was like, all right, I see where we're going. Because everything before that felt almost not just Amblin, it felt fucking after school special and its yeah, level yeah. of like, oh, bah, 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 bah. dad, you know, I'm just out here with my boyfriend. No big deal. Oh, now we're all getting murdered. But I mean, she doesn't get murdered, but you know what I mean? Like we're getting attacked by this fucking thing. And I just thought, oh, OK, I see. I see that ingredients were combining. And I think for some people that whiplash where it's like so cornball into trying to be and i'm not saying it's scary doug it's not scary but it is trying to be intense in those scenes that whiplash might be unsettling or even annoying for some people but sometimes i fucking love that shit i think it's Mm -hmm. really fun and in this case i thought it was fun i don't want to overestimate how fun it was but i think for me i went into this thinking this is going to be a piece of shit but uh but i i don't think it is a piece of shit if by that we just mean our enjoyment level. I don't know that it's super well executed, but I forgive a lot of its faults, honestly. What do you think of Corey Haim as a performer? Obviously, he had a very tragic life and an early death, but he was a huge, huge deal uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, I think I have a nostalgia for him to some extent. Um, I, I... He's he's being presented as very cool here in a way that I don't think <laughs> he's very cool. Even at this age, I don't think he was very cool. Uh, but I get that at you get to a certain age and you don't want to be the like sensitive little boy anymore, you know. So I kind of feel that. But in this movie, considering how much of it is him passionately advocating for a golden retriever, it's really hard for me not to like that he's a little bit soft and not maybe as badass as his outfit would suggest. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I like it. Uh, I like him in it, but I don't know. He's just not a super strong actor, Doug. He he conveys a vibe that I find compelling, but there's not a lot he's doing here that is is that impressive as a performer. I just think you know he 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 has a role to play that I think he is suited for. I think if you pushed him outside of the zone, it, you're not going to get much out of him, honestly. Right, especially when he's got to be like a tough guy at certain points. No, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and I, I don't think the movie intends this as a watcher, as as a watcher, as someone uh, watching the film, as a viewer of the film. Whenever he's trying to be tough, I, I think I see that as the movie is almost unintentionally mocking him. I never believe he's tough. At no point is he like, "All right, we're gonna set up these traps." And I'm like, "Yeah, man, that's gonna work. You're you're tough. You're like Rambo." The whole time I'm going, "Oh man, this is you're you're a fucking idiot. It's fine. Just keep going, man. It's cool." <laughs> it is a movie that's supposed to be like he had a father who is. I guess his parents are divorced. They said that's what him, they say in the movie. Yeah, yeah, but his father's not in the picture anymore. But the whole like climax of it is all these things that my father taught me about being tough and a survivalist and stuff like that, which they don't really reinforce previously, but that's fine. I mean, it all works out, and it, it does have a pretty interesting climax. I will say that the creature in this is not good. It is just, I don't know what it's supposed to be. Like, you mentioned it's like a Sasquatch movie. One of the cops, the the kind of comedy relief cops who die in horrific ways, uh, they also mentioned it pos- like being like a Sasquatch early in the movie. But it's like you never really get a very good look at it except in parts, even when at the end where you see its face, it's kind of like a monkey-dog hybrid. It is the weakest part of the movie for me. Yeah. In which a dog is asked to act multiple times. 
like this dog is meant to convey emotions. And the weakest part of the movie is the guy in the suit. The suit just doesn't work. I mean, the dog is like the dog is great, by the way. Uh, the, dog the dog fucking kills. Like, yeah. I don't I'm not like a big pet actor guy. Like, that's just not something I just, you know, I like dogs, but I don't really need them to, like, have an impact on the movie. This dog does great. When the monster dog is just an arm reaching through something and it's a big hairy arm, I'm okay. I'm actually okay with that. I don't sure. need more. I don't need much more than that. Even when we see the creatures, just its eyes looking through something, I actually think that's pretty strong. I was like, okay, that's kind of creepy. The moment we're getting full body work from this thing, I'm like, come on, it just looks like an overgrown chimpanzee. Get the fuck yes, out of here. It's like they're all being attacked by a big monkey. <laughs> It doesn't, and and the movie is so uninterested in trying to explain it. Even trying to yeah. explain, like, I, the only part of the mythology of this thing, Doug, that I kind of liked was the idea that the monsters are supposed to like the dogs. Like, the experiment was supposed to be, like, you send the dog in, and then the monster goes in, but the, the dog and the monster are, like, buddies, and they work together. They're, like, partners, but the monsters just hate the fucking dogs so much, they're jealous of the affection the dogs get, and so now they just want to kill the fucking dogs, I actually like that as a detail. Like, in the writer's room, someone pitches that to me. Like, if this... I mean, I know there's not a writer's room for this movie, but if there was... I, <laughs> there, are, I know, there are no writer's rooms generally anymore. <laughs> no, no, no. Right. But you know what I mean? Like, if this was a yeah. TV show and someone pitched that idea, I'd be like, fuck, yeah, I love that. They don't like the dogs. That's great. But the movie doesn't really make much of that difference. The no. only point that any of that matters is, like I said, that point at the end where Corey Haim's like, maybe I don't murder this thing that's trying to kill us because I feel kind of bad for it. And, like, that moment, which should be the dumbest part of the movie, I was like, no, I kind of get that, actually. Uh, you know, because that that is the mythology of this thing, that, like, it has an emotional, you know, the government's doing all these experiments to make this super monster, and the monster has emotional issues. Yeah, and well, I'm I mean, like, the monster... I like that. <laughs> The monster is a victim, right? It's a victim right. of all the. Yes, but 100%. it's hard to it's hard to pull that when you also know that Michael Ironside is also being experimented on, and I guess they oh, they are yeah. specifically trying to create someone without a conscience and without any empathy whatsoever. Well, uh, I mean that whole turn. You know, I've talked about this on other episodes of the show. Sometimes a movie makes a turn towards the ridiculous that either you reject and then the movie sucks, or you just embrace it and go, "This terrible movie is great." When Michael Ironsides reveals that he is also an experiment and that he has no conscience of any kind, I was like, yeah, dog. Like, I was riding with the movie at that point. Even though, again, some of the dumbest moments of the movie are in the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's also very exciting. I, I don't know. I, 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 guess, I guess, you know, my critical hat as an actual, you know, if I want to style myself as some sort of real critic, this movie sucks. Yeah. But, like... It makes so many ridiculous decisions and so many weird moments that I was entertained the whole time. And by the time, you know, Ironside's like, my superpower. It's, iron, it's Ironside. It's Ironside. Not Ironside. Right. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Come on, man. When the, when the, when the motherfucker from <laughs> Scanners reveals that he fucking, his superpower is that he doesn't give a fuck. I mean, there's, it's literally a moment, y'all, where it's like he's revealing he's magic, but his yes, magic, I know. his magic is that I don't care about anything. That's great. It sold me on the movie. And I was like, yeah, let's do this shit. We're doing it. Let's let's make it happen. I think it's like a reveal. It's like, you know how I've been acting like a weirdo the entire movie? This is why. <laughs> I do want to mention that uh, when Corey Haim first meets the dog, he feeds him a chocolate bar straight up. And the movie Insane. treats that like it's a good thing. While we all know that that is a horrible thing to do. And uh, I guess maybe it just wasn't 
a general knowledge in 1988 that you're not supposed to feed a dog chocolate. Uh, Liam, I know that you don't like pets. You don't have any of your own. Um, Stop. None of that is true. <laughs> but uh, would you like to have a genius dog living in your home? Now, this dog, this dog in this movie, it's basically, as, as they uh, reinforce, it almost has as much intelligence as a human. It's able to communicate. It can type on a computer. It can do all sorts of stuff. It can, like, if you ask it a question, it can give you a yes or no answer. Probably can do even more than that. Would you like a super intelligent golden retriever to be in your house? I mean, first off, no. I mean, I wouldn't want a normal German Shepherd in my house, which are like, you know, like German Shepherds are some of the smartest dogs, which is why they're known to be like depressed and to act out and do fucked up shit. Yeah, too much self-awareness, right? Yeah, exactly. 100%. (laughs) No, especially a gold retriever. Give me the dumbest brick of a gold retriever. The kind of gold retriever that just walks into walls because it doesn't know any better. That's what I want. I want a cuddly, dumb dog. I don't want a super smart dog. Also, the way they portray this dog is super smart. The dog plays Corey Heyman Scrabble and possibly beats him at Scrabble. But when it comes to fighting this monster, it has no good ideas. <laughs> this is what I don't understand. If we want to see this dog is smart, have it have some insight or some strategy in fighting this like possibly unbeatable killer ape monster. Instead, the dog is just good at Scrabble. I, I don't mean, love that part I, of the movie. I mean, look, in the context of trying to fight off a killer creature, yes, this dog is probably not the best help that you could have. But it would be pretty great to have a dog that could play Scrabble. <laughs> I don't even like Scrabble. No, it wouldn't. Scrabble's I fun. D- I fucking hate Scrabble. It's like I love Scrabble. Games. Get out of here. Well, maybe if you had a little bit of a larger vocabulary, you'd enjoy it a bit more. Oh, yeah? Cool. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Oh, that's so fun, Doug. Yeah. My problem with Liam, as you know, is I have a dog. And uh, she is very smart. And she's awful. She's the worst fucking dog in the world because of her <laughs> intelligence. So it's... Uh, I, I To me... And also, look... I don't. I don't mean to be coarse, but there are things that happen in my house that I don't want a dog to see, and um, <laughs> or even to be generally aware of that is happening. So, uh, yeah, no. So down on the super genius dog. I mean, I think they're okay to exist in the world, uh, but just not in my household. I think that's where I come down on uh, with the. Though I would like to have a golden retriever. I think they're very cute dogs. Yeah, they're very cute. I, I love the dog in this movie is very cute and endearing, and you want. I would murder anyone trying to hurt that dog, so I get it. Yeah. Any final thoughts, Liam, on Watchers from 1988? You said you're going to maybe pursue the sequels. I I think so, though. It's a bummer to me that the sequels with the actors I enjoy are supposedly not very good. That's a bit of a bummer, but I think I'll still try to check I will it say out. that, I mean, the general consensus on this movie is that it's also not very good. I don't think people think of, it's like, oh, it, it really fell off a cliff after the first one. I think people just say, hey, you know those Watchers movies? They're all bad. <laughs> That's fine. I mean, again, this was bad, but in a fun way. And so it that's good enough for me. But again, I don't know that I would say like, yeah, go watch, go go check out Watchers. You got to see it. But if I was programming a fest and I needed like a stupid fun movie, I'd put this on in a, in a marathon. I think it's I think it's a fun time. I think it is a movie that's been oddly forgotten a little bit, considering the fact that it does have so many sequels. And, I mean, it wasn't some massive hit at the time, but just the very fact that it at least stayed enough in public's consciousness that they thought of, you know, almost rebooting it. The last one with Mark Hamill is basically a reboot of the series to some extent. So, yeah, I I give a a mild recommendation, which might be the theme of the show, to 1988's Watchers. Let us take a break, Liam, and then you're going to take over. You're going to tell us why 1989's Leviathan is superior. It was an experiment that tampered with nature's most basic laws. 
It went terribly wrong. It was buried five miles down. Now, a crew of undersea miners is about to stumble upon this terrifying secret. Shack to seven. What's going on out there, Williams? My God, are you picking this up? Look at that. Leviathan. Currently with the Russian fleet in the Baltic Sea. Currently it's rusted junk and we're looking at it. What's your air reading? 20 minutes. Do something quick. We've lost him. My crew's in jeopardy. But you have no proof. I'm ordering you to start an emergency medical evacuation. Perched on the hull of a wrecked Soviet freighter, a team of deep-sea miners led by head oceanographer Stephen Beck comes face-to-face with a mutant creature that's the product of a failed genetic experiment. It's 1989's Leviathan, uh, directed by George Pan Cosmatos. As you all heard us talk about earlier, I, I didn't know who this was. Um, most people would know this Greek-Italian director from films like <laughs> Of Unknown Origin, uh, Rambo First Blood Part Two. I, of course, should have known that he directed Cobra because I love Cobra. But Cobra's not the kind of movie where I care too much about who directed it. Mm-hmm. And, of course, 1993's Tombstone. Um Although a lot of people think Kurt Russell really directed Tombstone, which I don't, I don't have an opinion on. Doug, I don't. Know. I think that's a general consensus, but I don't want to say too much about it because I don't, I don't have full confidence uh, in that. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, uh, continuing in the the creative team, we've got a, a team of writers: David Webb Peoples, who was a co-writer of Blade Runner, Lady Hawk. Uh, writer director of The Blood of Heroes, which I fucking love. Salute of the Jugger. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and uh, maybe most importantly, the writer of 1992's Unforgiven, uh, co wrote 12 Monkeys, and uh, the awful 1998 film Soldier. With, uh, also with Kurt Russell. Yeah, also with Kurt Russell. Uh, and then also Jeb Stewart, who worked on Die Hard. Uh, The Fugitive, Just Cause, Fire Down Below, and directed 1997 Switchback with Dennis Quaid and Danny Glover. Uh, but you know, there's there's a lot of people who worked on this, Doug, that people will have heard of. Music from Jerry Goldsmith, production design from Ron Cobb, who worked on Alien, <laughs> uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> Conan the Barbarian, Total Recall, um, others, uh, including notoriously Jodorowsky's Dune, uh, makeup effects from Stan Winston, as well as uh, effects help from Industrial Light and Magic. So the team on this thing, you know, behind the camera, are, you know on the set pretty amazing then we've got this cast peter weller as stephen beck uh richard crenna as dr glenn doc thompson amanda pays as elizabeth willie williams uh also daniel stern ernie hudson who i side note i kind of love ernie hudson and so when i we talk about this movie it's it's gonna bum me out um michael carmine (laughs) uh, lisa l bacher on you know meg foster on, on, on okay Doug, I, I like. I, I only had a certain number listed, and you just skipped Hector Elizondo. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, one, I was one getting on tired list. of reading all the names. I'm just like, ah, whatever. People are in the movie. That's all that matters. Doug, I, I think I've kind of given away a little bit of how I feel, but I, I want to know a little more about how you feel about 1989's Leviathan. Like I said before, I had confused it in my mind with Deep Star 6, so I was thinking it was going to be kind of this low-budget thing. But when you see that list of names, and not just the cast, but like everyone involved with it, this thing should have been fucking amazing! Like, everyone involved with it, top tier all the way, outside of maybe the director, depending on your perspective on Rambo, First Blood Part Two, and Cobra. Um, 
And I will say, I did not hate it. I don't want to give the impression I dislike it. It's just that it's a lot of wasted potential, particularly because it's basically just an alien ripoff underwater, which, I mean, you know, that's not uncommon. And it's kind of funny to think that this is coming in the wake of uh, The Abyss, which, of course, is directed by the director of Aliens. But this is a movie that wants to be alien. It wants to be the thing. And it wants to some extent also be aliens underwater. How could that go wrong? And I'm not really sure why it goes wrong. <laughs> Part of the reason it does is that, I mean, God bless Stan Winston's team. He didn't himself work on this, but his team did the makeup effects on it. Boy, this this movie could have used a Rob Bottin or someone like that. Someone who could just really get into the goop and give you a memorable creature. Because of how it works, where this genetic thing is as these people get taken over, they have to meld with each other. That has the, like, all the body horror of that should really come across. None of it does. All you get to see is kind of tentacles and shit going around. There is some kind of horrible and horrific stuff on display, but this thing should be an all-out creature fest when it really isn't. Even when you see the creature at the very end, finally you get to see the full thing. It's laughable. It is does not look good whatsoever. I do like the cast. I like their interactions, even though I think Daniel Stern is very annoying in this. I know he's supposed to be, but he's really, really annoying. But I love Peter Weller. I mean, I think Peter Weller does a great job in this. I think Richard Krenner has a lot of gravitas. I think he does a good job as well. But it just doesn't come together. And I think the main reason is that the direction is so bland. It's just a really blandly... There's no style... There's more style in Watchers than there is in this. It's just there's nothing to how everything is shown and displayed. There's no building of tension, really. There's lots of underwater stuff in like the first half hour, 45 minutes. But it feels kind of like you're being manipulated a little. Like it really feels like... Every scare that you're getting, all the tension that comes out of, oh, what happened to Daniel Stern? He fell. It, it's like, it doesn't make sense for him to go into a boat when he has like no air left, right? I mean, it's just a lot of it, it seems like people are making decisions just because of the creep factor. And it any kind of intelligent person watching would be like, well, what are they doing? They're not making any sense. They, they you know, they're not doing the things that a real person would do in those circumstances, especially because they're supposed to be intelligent people. I mostly still enjoyed it, but... It does feel like a movie that is is just awash with wasted potential. I hear what you're saying, and I think I agree with a lot of your criticisms. I just had less fun with it. I think f- so. There's a style of direction at play here, Doug. That I don't know if you'll feel this or not, but it feels more like a certain kind of Hollywood horror than it does mm. like some of the horror I love. There's a kind of uh, a lot of the musical cues feel very familiar. A lot of the editing choices feel very familiar. A lot of the shots of characters preparing to fight this monster remind me of other movies that we can talk about in a little bit. It's definitely a movie that's makes, that is designed to make you think of other better movies. Yes, 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 yes. And, and we'll get into the specifics of that in a sec. But for whatever reason, because of all that, and my feeling is, and I think on this we might disagree... I don't love Peter Weller in this movie. Interesting. I mean, I will say that that one thing about Peter Weller, and this is consistent through a lot of his career, is and it's what made him so great as Robocop, is that he's not an emotional actor. You never see oh, fear on his 100%. face. You never see excitement. He is a very... that's His stoicism is actually, I think, a, a plus in a lot of movies, but you're right. It just felt like, you know, he is a lot of this movie, and he's working with these other folks, and I just don't think he's conveying quite enough emotion for it to work. Mm. And, and again, 
that's no judgment on him as an actor. I've seen him in a lot of things, and I think he's great, and I think he's the right choice. I just don't know that he was the right choice for this role, and I don't think that his... He doesn't feel charismatic in this role to me, or at least not enough for what the movie demands. And it is a, another aspect of this movie where there's a lot of individual parts of this film that seem like a good idea that don't come together. We've got this soundtrack that ends up feeling too familiar. We've got this creature work that feels like a mess and feels like maybe it's borrowing too hard from other things. And I don't just mean the obvious of what, you know, we're going to talk about like alien or aliens. Uh, there's also parts that feel very much like, Hey, have you guys seen the thing? We saw the thing. Yeah. Here's parts that feel like the thing, but the film doesn't do enough work. There's a lot of explaining going on that doesn't quite get at why any of this shit is happening. And I'd be okay with that if the movie was more haunting, but it just it's just not there. There's not really enough of a mystery that I care about. The creatures look stupid. Uh, there's a real effort to make things look like sea creatures to an extent. And that stuff ends up just not looking very good. And the film, for me, doesn't maintain any tension, really. It's so, a weird thing, isn't it, right? Because I was thinking that myself. It should be all about this internal paranoia. The thing that, that That's the thing they, yes, they should be taking yes. from the thing. Yes. It's like because, especially because Peter Weller and Richard Crenna's character are hiding information from these workers, right? About how serious things are. When they find out about it, they don't freak out like, how could you be holding this back from us? How could you be lying to us? They're like, oh, okay. And like, they just accept it right away. Yeah, it isn't as combative or like they don't turn against each other in a way that you would think. And that's kind of the whole point of being in this small space with a <laughs> a thing that is both attacking them physically in terms of a creature, but also like taking over their bodies. Yeah, I mean, so like, let, let's let's put this out there that uh, like we I've, 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 I've play, beaten around the bush on this a little too much. Obviously, this movie is going to be influenced by Alien and Aliens. Like, that is a lot of the vibe, especially with all the hallway stuff, the water under the hallway, all this. There's there's a lot of moments where it's like the creature is in a space below that we're trying to – there's a lot of references to Alien and Aliens. Very much so. And the thing about Alien and Aliens that we don't talk about enough is that while I love both those movies, they play the same trick on you, right, which is – oh, guess what? The corporation, you can't trust them. And especially <laughs> if you see what I think is actually superior, which is the director's cut of Aliens. I actually like that better than sure. the theatrical. It just plays that note, which is the same fucking note, even harder. And yet I don't re I don't resent that. In fact, I love it. I think it's great. I love that yeah. that is the theme with both movies because they're very different in certain ways, but their continued theme is you can't trust the company. This movie has the same fucking reveal and it has nothing to – it's just like a light side note of, oh, they told everyone we're dead. I guess we're not getting picked up. All right. You know, like it, it doesn't feel like the film maximizes on any of its paranoia. Even the paranoia of there's a giant fucking monster in here with us. What are we going to do? You know, you they're in danger. You're concerned. But it doesn't have the power – of these other movies. And I don't know if that's the creature or what like this. I mean, it's part of it is the writing though. It's surprising. Yeah, exactly. Yes. That, right, because Meg Foster is basically supposed to be the Paul riser here, right? 100%. She's playing that character from aliens. She keeps checking in. She's like, Oh, I'm so sympathetic. But while she's still fucking them, while she's still saying that there's a big storm, which means that they can't pick them up when they're really just trying to figure out what to do with these people who might be infected with the 
this thing. And of course, the crew itself are just like mirror images of the alien crew. Right? They're, they're, they're just workers. They're just people who are have been doing a job regular, which is what you know they're designed to be. You know, they're just a collection of character actors doing that role. But Meg Foster is supposed to be this um, Machiavellian character, but they, it doesn't. It just doesn't hit. And then it really doesn't hit because the final moment of this movie is them. Some of the characters. I won't spoil it necessarily. Some of the characters living and escaping. And then they encountered her, and it's Peter Weller just fucking punches her in the face with the worst punch sound I think I've ever heard in a movie. Just a really, really terrible one. And it's supposed you're supposed to be going like, yeah, she really deserved that. And yes, she's evil. She does deserve it. But the movie doesn't earn it. You know what I mean? Not at, not at all. Not even a moment. And here's the other thing. Can I also say this is also a technical issue, which, again, this is the man who directed Cobra. So I'm not trying to attack a god among men. Uh, I just love Cobra, y'all. But um, <laughs> the directing of her scenes is bad, Doug, because this is a thing in the 80s, y'all, that people might not realize if they're younger. There was no simultaneous video technology. That shit didn't exist. So when someone is creating the illusion of a video phone, that's a directing trick. They have to get it so that the whoever is the live person is responding to a pre-recorded message in a way where you believe these two people are talking live, even though you know they're not. Or you cut it in a way where it seems like maybe they are. Every scene where these two people are talking to each other, it's clear they are not talking to each other. It's mm. painfully clear. I was watching it thinking, well, I know Peter Weller can act, and I know that Meg Foster can act, so this must be Cosmatos' problem because this scene fucking sucks. And if, if the basic performance is off, then how are you going to bring energy to a script that also feels a little lifeless. You know what I'm saying? By the and way, I don't know if you... I mean, I'm sure you picked up on this, and it's clear because of how the movie is structured. This movie takes place in the future. Even yes. even the future of where we are right now in 2023. Yes. Place, which, of course, is laughable because of some of the technology, like people typing out... Yeah, you got to like, forgive that, though. That's not... You, you, know. you got to forgive that. But the fact that there is communication with the land, right? Like they're, they're able to email back and forth and obviously do a video chat. That makes it all the more difficult to believe... That there was just no way to communicate, say, you know, whether there was a storm up there or whether they could get someone to rescue them or something like that. It just feels like they're somehow isolated while also having the internet at the same time. It's a very strange reality. I also had to rewatch a scene where the doctor is talking to someone, and I assumed he was communicating, like chatting with other doctors. Right. He had said, mm -hmm. I think he's talking to an AI. And so the fact that he says to an AI, well, just take a guess, and types out, just take a guess, I was yeah. like, get the fuck out of here, man. It's funny. I thought it was funny watching that because I was like, well, look, that does reflect ChatGPT a that's little bit more accurately true. than a lot of movies. <laughs> <laughs> ah, fuck. That's, I didn't think about that. But yeah, I guess that's true. Anyways, here's the thing. I'm willing to forgive a movie set significantly in the future in which everyone has pagers, right? That's yeah. fine. It's cute even that they have pagers. Whatever. But there's so many other things in the movie that don't work tension-wise. Like, I don't care that we're not in a believable world. I'm noticing we're not in a believable world because this movie is not keeping me on the edge of my seat. I'm not excited by it. I'm, like, kind of thinking, like, when is this shit going to be over? And I, th that's all coming across kind of harsh. I want to be clear. I don't – I think I basically agree with you, Doug. This isn't a terrible movie. I think it's actually a lot better than some other horror movies that came out in 1989. 
I just think with this much talent and yeah. a movie this slick, There's it, no should, excuse. it yeah. should at least be entertaining and parts of it are not entertaining to me. And that's crazy. And I think it was exacerbated by its combo with Watchers, a shitty movie that is often entertaining. Parts of it yeah. aren't. There are boring bits, but mostly it's an entertaining movie. So the fact that you had so much more talent and money behind Leviathan and it took a shit from the director of Cobra of all things. <laughs> fuck, fuck this movie. I, I, it really, it really kind of a pissed me off a little bit, Doug, even though again, I have so much affection for Peter Weller. I have so much affection for Ernie Hudson. Like there's so many people in this movie. I think are cool. Well, let's get into that. Actually, Doug, talk sure, to me yeah. about this cast. We already said the script they have to work with is maybe not the best script, but let's talk about their performances. How did you feel about the performances of this cast and the chemistry of this cast like how they worked as an ensemble the thing is you can't help but compare it to alien and that's really difficult because that alien cast really does have a great chemistry together right and when they're talking and they're sitting around a table and they're just shooting the shit and one of them's doing a puzzle and one of them is like they're just trying to pass the time they they become believable even when they're very recognizable actors playing that to a certain extent here they do a pretty good job except they're all just pitched a little bit wrong the, the, the female characters, unfortunately, are not given as much. They, they're, they're not defined as characters for the most part. So they're, they're kind of boring or maybe they're, the camera lingers on them a little bit too much. You know what I mean? Um, and then you have, again, I like Daniel Stern. I do. I think he's a great actor. But here he is very, very irritating. He's just supposed to, like, how could they have been there for months in this small space where this guy just constantly sexually harassing and annoying everybody? I think Ernie Hudson is still great in this. I think he's actually the MVP of this. And I was just thinking of a reality where it would have been a marketable decision to make him the lead instead of Peter Weller. And maybe that could have actually improved things pretty significantly because he has so much more personality and emotion to him. Um, I mean, you know, I think it's a good ensemble. and But it's not the movie that you would think you would get when you see this ensemble on paper. Um, and you would think that, oh, this is going to be fun seeing all these great actors, you know, uh, chewing up the scenery, have it, you know, really tearing into it. It's actually played a little straight. And if you're going to play it straight, then it's got to be as good as Alien or The Thing. And uh, and that's the other thing that this movie has almost no humor to it, which uh, you like it, it's meant to have humor with the Daniel Stern character. But what I mean is that there's no actually funny stuff in this movie. But I know that sound, that might sound strange as well. But the, the whole w reason that a lot of great horror movies work is that kind of release of tension and then building up. This is a movie that just I think what, what it comes down to is, is we're really just saying the same thing over and over is that the director is not great at making a horror movie. He just doesn't understand how it's supposed to work. And I think that comes across with some of the trivia about this movie, which is that he didn't know how all the t the effects stuff was supposed to work, so he right, just let yeah, the effects yeah. crews kind of take over and just let them do it instead. Uh, though you think if he was going to let them go hog wild, you'd get something a little bit more interesting than what we see here. I yeah, I agree. I, I it's strange to me how often the effects don't work. I will say one exception. I think the concept was kind of stupid, but the visuals worked. Is when the one character is attacked by the eel. And it starts uh, to incorporate itself into his body. De Jesus is when he's when he's in like the the cafeteria part. Yes, yeah, absolutely. That's kind of that, scary. Yeah, yeah. That the effects of that are very well done and very freaky, which is almost evidence as to why the other stuff is so disappointing. Because it's like, well, you nailed that thing. Why didn't you work as hard on the other stuff? But maybe there just wasn't a clear vision. I mean, this this movie really is trying to make this creature feel like a sea monster 
but also remind you of both The Thing and Alien at the same time. Well, that's too many things. They're, they're trying to be too many bands. at You know what I mean? Like, this is someone who's like, I like uh, Slayer, and I like Pink Floyd, and I like <laughs> Kylie Minogue. Let's do this thing. And it's like, no, no, no. It's not working. And it really doesn't. And I think I don't want to lay all the blame on special effects, but I do think with a more effective effect uh, on the monster, this movie would be bumped up to not great, but kind of fun, right? And instead... Well, it, 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 doesn't it, it feel like, like an early 80s alien ripoff more than it feels... Like, even though it is obviously an alien ripoff, it shouldn't be... It shouldn't feel like a a Roger Corman version yes. of an alien movie yes. when it has this much... This many resources available to it. And the I fact agree. that we can only talk about it in those levels, that's kind of an embarrassment. It's like... You got fucking like the top of the top when it comes to effects and music and acting. Why isn't it better? <laughs> so w- one thing that's true, Doug is, and I'm sure other people have this experience in the in the '90s, right? When I was spending a lot of time in video stores, and I'm sure you were as well. Oh yes, uh, the covers for Leviathan and the Abyss were similar enough that because I had not yet seen either movie, I got them confused all the time. Uh, even though here's the big reveal on this one, they are nothing. They have nothing in common whatsoever, except this, for the fact that they're underwater. Is that literally the yes. only thing they have in common? But this was not just me. Other people would always you would say the abyss, and they'd be like, "Oh, the underwater monster movie." No, no, no. That's Leviathan. This is different. This is the. <laughs> this happened a lot in my life. I don't know if it happened in other people's lives. Um, but these are not related movies in any way, right? Like I get that. They have similar underwater vibes, but this is an entirely different movie, and it it can't even see the abyss from where it is, right? Like the I don't know. Some people hate the abyss, but I think it's a pretty effective movie. And I went into this maybe not even thinking of Alien and Aliens, which I guess I should have, because I, I went into this thinking about the abyss, Doug, and it's yeah, nothing like the abyss. What the no. fuck? <laughs> Because it's not a ripoff of The Abyss. Even no, it's though, not. It was just that, I mean, it probably, one of the reasons it was greenlit at the time was because underwater movies, they knew The Abyss was coming. They knew that underwater movies were going to be in fashion. So this and Deep Star 6 and a few others all came out at the same time, which is not an unusual thing to happen. But yeah, this movie isn't designed to, oh, we have a we have the script of The Abyss. Let's make a movie like that. It's more like, oh, underwater Let's make a movie like other movies that are popular, uh-huh. which isn't even a bad idea. I do think that the, one of the big mistakes they made is being underwater isn't like being in space. It's not exactly nope. the same. The nope. idea that everything around you could kill you, yeah, that's good. The fact that you're trapped in a small space, yeah, that's good as well. But like the communicative part, like it doesn't even make sense compared to the thing where they're in the Antarctic where they only have certain levels of communication. It's supposed to be like 50 years in the future. <laughs> You're telling me someone doesn't have a cell phone that can reach the fucking... I mean, maybe you can't that deep underwater. But at the very least, they have... When you have a video feed that you could see people in real time, even though they don't do it very effectively in the movie, if you can have that, it makes no sense that they can't communicate better with people on the land. Like, they should be talking to their families every day. If they can have a video feed to that fucking... Wo- to Meg Foster's character, why don't they have their families t- that they're talking to all the time? Yeah, I don't I don't know, Doug. And and what's more is I think one of the things they're also borrowing, not just from Alien, right, but from a number of these other movies, is this really compelling group of 
outsiders who are forced together and we're supposed to believe they have these like rich lives and all this stuff. And then the movie just doesn't, it like shows you these people like sets the board and then it doesn't feel very interested in them after that. They kind of don't matter as individuals. And the one time it kind of comes up is the, uh, I guess, Jesus character going back to like, his puzzle and talking about Switzerland or whatever. Yeah, 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 wanting to ski and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't mean a goddamn thing. It has no. You compare value. that to you compare that to Yafet Koto and Harry Dean Stanton in Alien. You know, be these grizzled yeah, fucking workers yeah. who are just just in it for the money. You're right. They, it just a, a lot of it falls on the writing and a lot. And it's not really necessarily the performers. They could probably do it, but boy, it, they just don't. They don't get there when it comes to the characterizations. It, it, I think because of the timing of the movie and the fact that it's not great, I found myself thinking about all the shitty Asylum films that come out when a big yeah. thing's coming out. But it's not that, right? Like there, no. is a, there is talent on display here. It just feels like everything is wasted, including, as you pointed out, a really solid performance from Ernie Hudson that I think deserved more time. It deserved a bigger piece, and it deserved more to do, right? He's just sort of there to be the other guy. And it it doesn't it's not executed well. And so I just found myself thinking with the whole movie that maybe the whole thing felt a bit like a missed opportunity. And mm. for whatever reason, I find that more frustrating than a movie that's entirely a bad idea in the first place. It's so funny because we're going to get to our, our, our kind of comparison of the two movies that we're talking about here. And this is a really interesting one because I think these movies are actually of similar quality. Maybe even Leviathan being, I mean, in terms of a movie, it's probably a little bit better, like in terms of craft. Yes, yes. But I think we both enjoyed Watchers more because the expectations maybe were a little bit less, but also that it's just like, it's Watchers is basically achieving what it's trying to achieve. Leviathan's not even coming close to achieving what it's trying to achieve. Yeah, I think that's what it is, right? Is that um, in so clearly trying to be these other very well-done movies, you're in their shadow a little bit, but also you've got so much talent on the board that is being wasted that the whole thing ends up feeling like it, it isn't what it could be. Whereas for me, at least, Watchers just feels like weird that it's actually pretty fun. It's surprising <laughs> that I'm having fun watching it. And the parts that are stupid are like also fun to me. And I don't feel that way about this movie. So I think it, it, you know, there are maybe maybe listeners to this who are going to be like, I can't believe you didn't like Leviathan, but you like watchers, but I'm just going to stick with my thing. I think Leviathan is, you know, it doesn't do what it needs to do. And watchers kind of overperforms what I thought it would do. And that's how I feel about these movies. It's funny that how much expectations play into it, though, right? Because if you'd say that Watchers is, hey, it's surprisingly okay, but you go to Leviathan, you say, oh, it's surprisingly bad, but they both come down at almost the same level. <laughs> it just really does come down to expectations and the fact that, particularly Leviathan, invites comparison to so many better movies. I guess you could say that about Watchers to a certain extent, but if you lived through the 80s like Liam and I did, there were a thousand movies that were <laughs> like in the wake of E.T. and Amblin and those kind of style of like small town movies. Um, and maybe nostalgia plays a little bit into it as well. Liam, so I won, obviously. I think that's clear on the table. Uh, though um, we, I didn't win by leaps and bounds. It's not like we're, we're championing uh, Watchers as a franchise going forward. But I think we both had very similar responses in regards to uh, our feelings on both of these movies, though I think I gave Leviathan a higher rating on Letterboxd, and I thought you were going to walk away with it. I 
I really thought going in that this was going to be an unfair thing, even though I'd never seen Leviathan. I sure. thought it's got to be better than this dumbass Watchers movie. Like <laughs> Doug has really <laughs> fucked his, himself up on this one, and uh, I I just think Watchers is 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 a more enjoyable movie, and that's how I have to rate it. There might be aspects of Leviathan that are more impressive, whether that's set design or things like that, the the soundtrack, whatever. I just had more fun watching Watchers, so there it is. Watchers wins. You know how people talk about sometimes how that instead of remaking great movies and making bad versions of them, that they should be remaking flawed movies into something good? Leviathan would actually be a really good candidate for a remake because there's something in that concept, even just the ripoff of of, of the aspects of the thing in Alien, that she could work with into something good. But this just isn't it, unfortunately. Liam, as the winner, I'm going to ask you, where can people find more episodes of Cinema Fantastica or other great podcasts in the world? Well, people could head on over to Cinepunks.com. That's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X for not just this podcast, but a whole family of podcasts, all the latest episodes, some writing, you know, not a ton, but, you know, we're we're having new things go up every once in a while, Uh, and even a a shirt store if they would like to purchase a shirt uh, for Cinepunks. Uh, And, of course, if they want to get into the archive of the various subjects that we cover, they can head on over to CinemaSmorgasBoard.com, where not only will they find more Cinema Fantastica, but, uh, you know, a bunch of stuff. We, We talk about... About actors and directors and and all manner of of cinema related topics over there uh, on social media. Cinepunks is just C I N E P U N X on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And uh, we're on Twitter, Doug, as of now uh, at Cinema Smorg S M O R G. You can, of course, follow Liam on Twitter as well, at Liam Rules, that's R-U-L-Z, and I'm on there as well, at Doug underscore Tilly, that's T-I-L-L-E-Y. If you enjoy what you're listening to, you enjoy one of our other Cinema Smorgasbord podcasts, like uh, the ones devoted to Carol Kane, Steve Buscemi, Jackie Chan, Paul Bartel, Alejandro Jodorowsky, George Kennedy, etc. Why don't you leave us a review on your podcast provider of choice? Every little bit helps, keeps us ad-free, or maybe just tell a friend. We always appreciate you getting the word out. For now, Liam, we need to take a little break. We're going to be back very soon with more Cinema Fantastica. Good night, everyone. Night-night.